You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, Jennifer, I have a question. And let me say first that I love musical theater audiences. We can't do this without them. And also, you can't convince me that somebody didn't go up to an usher during intermission on Broadway and ask, when does Celine Dion come out and sing the song? <laughs> Right? Like that had to have happened. I remember um, we we would have these kids groups come and there were talkbacks after and the kids were uh-huh. like, well, there was no Kate and what's it like? They were so confused as to our storylines. And we were like, yep, this story is that we're representing the real people and we're trying to tell the stories in the different classes and yeah, there was a lot of confusion. Where is that song? Where Where are those two characters? Why weren't you ever doing this? You know. <laughs> yes, yes, of course. The big, the big pose at the front of the the boat. The king of the world. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> they were holding on hard to the Leo DiCaprio. Exactly. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are discussing the musical Titanic or Titanic or Titanic. However, Mr. Yeston wants us to sing it. We're covering Titanic because it was a listener request from Allison. Thank you so much for writing us, Allison. In her request, she said the following about doing the show. Quote, I have such fond memories, as weird as that sounds, when we did it with a community theater in Cincinnati. The music is stunning and putting yourself in those people's shoes is fascinating. I know a community theater production of Titanic sounds just awful, but I swear we were all qualified. We just also had day jobs, so we were doing theater for fun. Okay, first of all, anybody out there who might be listening to the podcast for the first time, you do not need to apologize for community theater here on a musical theater podcast. I can personally think of at least two occasions when I saw community theater that was as good, if not better, than professional productions. And... To be honest, even if your community theater production was terrible, I also believe that it can be bad and very important at the same time. Still, Allison, 
Sounds like you guys had a great experience, and I'm super happy that you requested this wonderful show. And here to talk with me about the great experience that is this epic musical is the lady made herself. You know her as the original Kate, Kate McGowan. Everyone, please welcome Jennifer Peach. Hello. And oh my gosh, Allison. That's funny. I we have I have two children. My, our oldest is Allison. No way. I was like, was that my daughter? Did she repeat that? (laughs) I I don't think so. (laughs) Okay. So where are you born and raised? Because I hear you say daughter. Oh, gosh. You're hearing my Jersey twang. Yes. Which I love. Girl, exit four. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was born and raised in South Jersey. Um, Great. Oh, my God. And I spent some formative years actually in Atlanta, Georgia, because my father got transferred. He was an IBMer, a life IBMer. Um, and so I spent like middle school years and the beginning of high school in Atlanta. And then we moved right back to the same town. Um, and it's called Cinnamons in New Jersey. It never makes the map. It's a very small town. That's an Indian name. And it's near Cherry Hill. Most people know where Cherry Hill is. So our big city was Philadelphia. We would go and see shows there and occasionally go to New York, but mostly Philly. How awesome. Um, well, I'm so grateful that you came to spend some time with me this afternoon to talk about this show. I saw you in the original Broadway cast. Uh, it was my very first trip to New York. It was the week after the Tony Awards. Oh, my gosh. All of this excitement and energy. I, um, I'm from a very small town myself in northern Utah. And uh, so I was super hyped for that season because I was a big Rosie O'Donnell fan. I had watched the Tony Awards, which had been expanded to this whole four hour thing between PBS and CBS. So like I was in and I just had such a wonderful time. And there were so many stage pictures from your production that have stayed with me ever since. It was a really powerful experience. Wow, that's nice. All the way from Utah. I love it. From Utah with my grandparents. They took oh, me for yeah. my 16th birthday. Isn't that wow, sweet? Oh, yeah. I'm ve- I was a very lucky boy. <laughs> um, now, can you take us through how this show became a part of your life? So I, you know, I moved to New York after graduating from college. I spent one year in Philadelphia working as an intern at the Walnut Street Theater, which was also a wonderful, informative experience. And then I lived on someone's sofa and spent the year, you know, like you do. You move to New York with your clothes and your filing cabinet of music and whatever else you need. You kind of have to live there and audition there to get the work and the work initially, at least for me and many other people my age at the time is elsewhere. You move to New York to leave New York. Yeah, to be a New York actor, but and because so many auditions are held there, but they're held for all over. So regionally and touring productions, big and small, kind of initiate there. And um, so I was just auditioning, 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 playing wonderful parts in the regions um, and, you know, just hoping to be seen for the bigger projects. And I did take a class with Barry Moss. The casting office was um, Julie Hughes and Barry Moss at the time. And I remember taking a class with Barry and it was one of those like multiple week classes where you really got to do many things. So it wasn't just like we're and we're and we're paying for an audition and then we go away. We we got to know him, he got to know us, we got to do all like a full range of things. And shortly thereafter, the Titanic breakdowns were coming out and those auditions were being held. 
and I got called in. And I, I truly believe it was because he consistently saw that, you know, I was professional in that I would just get up and do the work and show up and, and do that. Yeah. Because um, I didn't know anybody on that level yet. And our um, director, Richard Jones, the great Richard Jones, British, I really felt like I got a fair shot because he really didn't know anybody. If he had known all of the players in New York at that time, I might not have gotten seen for this role because I didn't already have credits at that level. You know what I mean? Um, But I did feel when I read the material that, oh, I, I know her. I know this. I feel like, you know, I have something to bring to this. I just need to relax and try to try to just show who I am, what I, you know, what I bring to this material. And and initially, it's funny, I was telling you, Jeff, um, that I did a podcast recently with some other Titanic alum. And they were, uh, the guy was asking us about the initial auditions. And I forgot then, but I remembered subsequently, like, oh, that's right. I forgot about that part. I wish I had remembered to say that. But in our initial auditions for a musical, we were asked to do two contrasting monologues one current and one like classical. And it just so happened that I had been just working in classes because I auditioned for plays. I auditioned for musicals. I had them ready. My monologues happened to be about one of them, the current, the modern day one happened to be from a Beth Henley play, happened to be a pregnant girl, like knowing nothing about Titanic, you know, and this and the the storyline of Kate McGowan. It was just sort of, kismet but when Richard was in the room and Barry brought us in the first time we were asked to do these monologues for this British director and I, I think, oh how British how wonderful you get to go in you get to talk you get to do some pieces they get to know you a little bit in a way that I just didn't in other regular auditions it was very it was really special even from then and then eventually you know singing That is fascinating. Okay, so real quick, as you're telling me this, I'm suddenly remembering my New York showcase graduating from college. And we had we were like uh, doing master classes conjoined with another university. And they had brought somebody in to teach the acting master class. And it was your castmate, Judy Blazer. Oh, Judy. Yes. Who is just a brilliant actor, right? And performer and overall great gal and she told us the story that the director had asked you guys to do two monologues and I had completely forgotten about that because that was the first and last time that I was ever told to prepare monologues <laughs> as a musical theater actor so oh my gosh I well, can't even believe that because they were all at a different level they had already done like their big breakout roles on Broadway and they were playing principal characters but not me. So I didn't know. That's interesting. I, Judy had to do that too, huh? Yes. Okay, that's yes. good to know because she had had a lot of experience prior to that. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And Richard Jones, who you mentioned as the director, was mainly an opera guy, right? Exactly. He was used to the pageantry, which is, we had a lot of pageantry which, in our show. Hello. Yeah. But also, does he make opera singers do monologues? <laughs> that's a good question. I would like to know that answer. <laughs> Probably not. He probably just has a discussion with them. I just, I I imagine the British, from what I understand, the British experience of auditioning is a little bit different than ours. I mean, it's a more cordial experience where you're chatting. 
and getting to it that. isn't quite so dr- no, dramatic it's not like you get your 16 bars get in get out <laughs> no it's a little more uh, i was told recently that the amount of cortisol that goes through our bodies in the audition process is like the same of being chased by a lion, like <laughs> scientifically proven. And when I heard that, I, I did what you did, which was just laugh hysterically. I'm like, are you serious? I'm putting myself through that much stress every time I try to get a job. What on earth am I doing? I believe life? it. It's stressful. It's very stressful. <laughs> But you have to reframe it in your head, I think. You have to. Absolutely. Well, like you were saying, relaxing. And not nerves. You have to sort of oh, sure, you have to sure. tell your mind, I'm excited, you know. <laughs> I love lions. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you go through a gajillion auditions. You get the role. You're among quite possibly the most, I mean, celebrated cast of actors to ever work as an ensemble on Broadway. David Garrison, Victoria Clark, you had Michael Cerverus. I mean, just Brian an insane. James, uh, uh, Brian D'Arcy James, yeah. hello. Incredible, it incredible. Was... So what was the feeling amongst the cast when you finally started to get to work on this? Did you even know what you were in for? It, I mean, it was so magical and I was so grateful every second of every day. And I almost wow. couldn't believe you know, I couldn't believe my luck and I couldn't really believe that it was going to happen until we started in the rehearsal rooms. And and there we were, this cast of so many wonderful, weird, interesting, you know, like you said, actors. It was such like a it was such an interesting looking and feeling group of humans. And the whole experience was so bonding because we had quite a difficult journey through the preview period where we were you know, the press was saying it's, you know, you, we get these negative things about the ship won't sink and this is going yeah. wrong and that's going wrong and um, and changes every day because there were elements that just weren't working. Um, certainly technical elements that weren't working, but also in the storytelling, we, we feel bonded in a way. And I, and I, you know, I feel so grateful to have been part of that company. It was extraordinary, truly extraordinary. Well, now we're going to on the on the podcast, we're going to be covering a show that had a lot of rumors going on a- around it in you know, the theater journalism world. But unfortunately, that show didn't succeed. And yet you guys were able to push through that negativity and really come into your own. How do you do that? period, <laughs> question mark. Like, how, how, how do you do that? I'm just, I'm curious. Well, I think that ultimately they were able to make the changes that needed to be made to give the audience the emotional payoff that they needed. Um, Fair I'm sure if you talk to anybody else about the Titanic endings that we had prior to the, the choral ending that we had where the dead kind of meet the living, and that really didn't get put in till I think it was like the day before press started coming. But we knew there. Oh, my God. It was crazy. We knew there needed to be a cathartic thing. And like what we had was poor old Michael Cerverus in a jumpsuit walking out as Robert Ballot of the Oceanic uh, Institute and talking about the exploration of the of the Titanic pieces on the bottom of the ocean. Like the remains. Yeah. You'd see this little thing come down on a string as if it was the submarine or whatever that uh, thing is called looking at the wreckage. And we were all backstage like, Oh my gosh, this can't, (laughs) 
this is just so, oh, uh, how can we end you this? You just feel terrible. But every night, as I understand it, and I do think maybe because I was so young and green and I don't think that I was privy or really understood what was happening every night after a preview. The creatives mm-hmm. and the producers were apparently going to a hotel room because it was neutral territory <laughs> and um, just like hammering out stuff. And I think sometimes they were knocked down, drag out fights of people fighting for what they felt was the right moment or the right storytelling um, or, you know, let's throw in this song. And there were songs that were thrown in and Judy Blazer, actually, Judy and Don, their parts changed tremendously. My part didn't really change all that much, but, you know, we'd come in that next morning, we'd get new pages, we'd sometimes get a new song or a new chunk that was going to go in that night if we had time to tech it. Otherwise, we were rehearsing something new during the day we didn't have time to tech it. So then we come in the next day and tech that and put it in that night. So it was, you know, crazy and difficult and challenging and exhilarating. And some, you know, certain little aspects with these changes started to click and work. Okay, we got that part. And then, you know, one by one, like the lifeboats number wasn't there. And then all of a right. sudden we had the lifeboats number. And that completely changed the emotional resonance of that whole thing with wrenching people apart and but the ending the ending was the thing that you know really tied the show together and that really didn't go until so late in the process and at that moment I remember seeing the crew in the in the backstage just like they were crying and we were crying because we felt like we know this we know this worked. Like now I think we have a show, you know? Wow. Um, That's so powerful. Yeah, really. What, I mean, I'm sure that was stressful speaking of cortisol, but like (laughs) what a thrilling thing to witness that, that feeling of we got it. Yeah. Because we know where we were and we hadn't got it yet. And and even though like we felt like, okay, we, we, now we have this storytelling, even so it may not be a critical success. We didn't know. You know, sure. and and even if it is a success, it may not run for all mm-hmm. of those reasons. But you brought up Rosie O'Donnell earlier, and I'm telling you, she she responded to the show, and I feel like she promoted the show in a way that made it have a life because our nut, our 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 weekly nut was so expensive to run that show because of the huge cast and the huge crew and uh, everything associated with it because of that national exposure she gave us and multiple times she did this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like she single-handedly helped us survive those really slow parts of the business. You know, there are like traditionally the fall is a very slow part where you're like, Oh, please let's hang on until get to the end of the year. Yeah. Till you get all the holiday seasons when everybody is buying tickets and they're in New York. And then again, it gets slow again in the winter where you're like, Oh, mm-hmm. I hope we survive these months because the spring is generally pretty good with the tourists. And my gosh, who, <laughs> who I didn't, I always love when conversations surprise me and I knew that this was going to be an awesome one, but I didn't realize how much of the creative process we would get an inside look into by delving into this musical. So thank you for taking us through that. That's really yeah, exciting to me. of course. And it also was just such a root. I mean, Richard Jones is a real visionary. And he mm. had he had a way that he wanted to to tell the story. And the actors, we loved him. And everybody just, whatever he asked, 
of us, we really wanted to make that work too, because he's a visionary and we wanted to be a part of that vision and we wanted to help it. But some things just simply didn't work for musical reasons or just the structure of the scene work itself or whatever it was, but everybody tried, you know, like nobody was too proud to try that thing that you might look foolish doing. We were like, yeah, okay. Richard, let's, give it a whirl. let's do it. Let's try it. Wow. That's inspiring. Now let's go back to the genesis of the musical. This is the first Mara Yeston musical that we're covering on the podcast. So real quick, let's do a, a deep dive. He was born in New Jersey as well, Jennifer Peach. Uh, his father was born in England and Mr. Yeston attended Yale where he studied music theory. He is quoted as saying, I am as much a lyricist as a composer, and the musical theater is the only genre I know in which the lyrics are as important as the music. So after graduating, he then went to Cambridge in the UK to keep studying classically and really wanted to bring this dramatic musical symphony sweep into the Broadway musical theater. And to that, I say, congratulations, Maury. I think you did it. Because <laughs> all of his shows have this incredibly dramatic symphonic sound to them beginning in the very early 80s when nine came out and was a huge smash and then in the mid 80s he wrote his version of the phantom story called phantom andrew lloyd webber's came out after and then kind of uh, made his disappear but uh and i hear his phantom is magnificent too i don't know that show yeah I hear it's so beautiful. It just I mean he can't write he can't not write a stunning song. Let's be honest, right? Yeah. That is brilliant, true. Brilliant and guy. in so many different styles too. Oh. And we always said for Titanic because it's such big ensemble singing in the key of H, you know, it was like this ridiculous <laughs> high high keys where we're all like Whoa! So I'm an alto in this show, but in any other show that would be a soprano one. <laughs> You're like, lower the larynx, lower the larynx. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, Then he gets hired to help out the musical version of a famous film called Grand Hotel that Tommy Toon, who once again had done nine, was also directing and choreographing. And Tommy Toon asked him to come on and also Peter Stone to help the book. Now, if listeners remember from our Will Rogers Follies episode, Peter Stone and Tommy Toon had worked together on that show. So he was kind of the secret ingredient for Peter Stone and Mari Yeston to meet and start working together. They immediately hit it off. And while they're working on Grand Hotel, adding some stuff to help it become the success that it ultimately was, uh, they were on a break and Mari said he had this crazy dream to write a musical about the Titanic. And Peter Stone was like, uh, I have a crazy dream to write a musical about the Titanic. And so right then and there, they decided that it was going to happen. Now, this is no great surprise to anybody who knows about Peter Stone because he really likes creating musicals based on real events. Obviously, the Will Rogers Follies, but also and maybe even more infamously, 1776. That show was a huge hit and, like Titanic, featured an ending that everyone already knew was going to happen, right? We all know that the Declaration of Independence got signed. Yeah. That was, that's not a surprise. But when we watched 1776, we're still on the edge of our seats to see if it would happen. So it was never a question to him 
the fact that everyone knew the ship was going to sink uh, uh, as to whether or not it would be a compelling musical. In fact, Peter Stone says it's one of those stories that if it hadn't actually happened, nobody would have believed it. Now, why do you think that this story still connects with so many people? Why are we so fascinated by this ultimately really tragic event in our world's history? I think it's about man creating something beyond anything that he's created before and testing its limits Mm. in a way, you know? I mean, this was supposed to be the most advanced machinery, et cetera, of its day. And it was put to the test and it failed. I mean, in in the way that sending sending people to the moon is that that's a dramatic story too. Like how is that created? And yeah, I, I, you know, the industrial revolution had really kind of convinced everybody that technology was the answer Mm. that uh, machines could make everyone's life better forever. And the Titanic really was this huge moment where we realized, oh, machines aren't always going to answer our questions. And so the Titanic story not only becomes a survival story for the people who were able to survive or who didn't, but also for, I think, all of us that we got to remember what's important, um, even if it's just our dreams. You know, what ultimately makes us human is the most important thing. Um, It's interesting, too, because that tragedy, I mean, I guess all tragedies, is kind of like the great leveler, too. There were people in first class and people in third class experiencing the same death. And uh, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. It doesn't matter. It, it, It came to everybody the same. Unfortunately, it also showed the the prejudice among those different classes of passengers, right? Because 155 women and children from second and third class died as compared with two from first class. So death came to everybody equally who was chosen to survive was ultimately a prejudice. And I think that was a big wake-up call for everyone as well. And and just the hubris of not not having enough lifeboats to support people should there be an accident, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Amen. Um, this great boat that we're talking about, which I'm sure everyone knows, set sail in 1912. It was 882 feet long, which is a football field. It weighed 46,000 tons. So it's it's a big piece of metal. Uh, that was somehow floating and moving at a very high high speed. And when Peter Stone started researching all of this stuff, and he references quite a few books, Walter Lord's A Night to Remember and The Night Lives On, which are are both filled with details about the voyage of the Titanic, he he basically makes a promise to himself that he is only going to include real-life people and events as much as best as he can in this story. So that means your character, Kate McGowan, who was in the third class and an immigrant going to America, was a real person that he saw in the ledger. Is that right? Yes, you can see all of our names were in the ledger. I mean, not, nothing was really known about the steerage passengers, for sure. Oh, of course, so of you, course. You could have the names. So, so, you know, artistic license with a compelling story of an immigrant story. But we always all felt a responsibility 
to honor, like we didn't take it lightly, that these were real people. This is their real names. I am representing them, even though it might not be exactly who they were or certainly not what their lives were really. But they did travel on this boat and they did pass away. And we felt a responsibility to honor that and we're proud to carry their names, you know, through the show. So, so in, in the third class with you were... European immigrants, such as the Irish, the Turkish, Italians, and Scandinavians, they were assigned to the Titanic by lottery. So they literally won the lottery to get on the Titanic, which just sounds like the worst lottery. (laughs) Worst luck ever. Right? Good heavens. So that's third class. You got the second class, which honestly was probably made up a lot of socially ambitious types of people. People who maybe aren't, you know, super wealthy, but want to look like they're wealthy. But that was they... like Alice Bean. Alice Bean. Exactly. Yeah, she was a climber. She was. She wanted to be a part of that world. And yeah, so the second class in the story is probably best represented by Alice Bean, who was played by Victoria Clark and her husband, and she's just so excited to get her picture taken to next to all of the millionaires right. and multi-millionaires in first class. Which then brings us, of course, to first class. Now, pretty much every American multimillionaire was booked on the Titanic. J.P. Morgan and the Vanderbilts didn't attend, but both had booked tickets. Everybody else was on the ship. And so a lot of the American millionaires died on the Titanic, which is pretty insane to think about. The Strausses, of course, Guggenheims, right? Widener, Guggenheim. And then we have the officers and crew. So there were more than 900 officers and crew members, which compared to the 1,400 passengers, that means for every 1.5 passenger, there was like an employee of the ship. Uh, which is a huge, huge crew. I mean, just so many people packed onto this thing. And they had decided not to include as many lifeboats on the ship to ensure that the first class got bigger staterooms. So huge error there in terms of wanting, you know, status more than safety. And ultimately, I mean, was the reason that everybody died. Even if the ship had sunk and they had enough lifeboats, people would have survived. I mean, so many things. It was that they took a more northern route to try to save time because they also wanted to set the record. and Right, and push it faster and faster. Yeah. So it was just like this perfect storm so of every horrible thing to go wrong. Yeah. With all of this incredible information and research being done... Yeston and Stone get a researcher to organize all of the facts and compile them into four loose-leaf volumes, cross-indexed by date, by hour, and on the fatal night, minute by minute, by character name, logistic data, and sociological import. What? I didn't like, know the amount of Wow. The amount of preparation that they did before even, like, truly trying to put this piece together is just insane and I think really bodes well for what you guys ultimately came up with, which is something that feels very reverent and historically respectful. And also, I, I, always, I always feel like it's, it's so hopeful, like everybody was so hopeful because mm. it was this 
achievement. Absolutely. When Mari Yeston is asked about whether he writes the music or lyrics first, he says neither. It's actually premise that comes first. So I must get on that ship, which is a phrase that pretty much everybody sings in that opening number that goes on for how long? I mean, that yeah, open, that like whole opening montage. 15 minutes. It's such a beautifully built masterpiece. I mean, just that opening number alone. He says that that phrase, I must get on that ship, was just born out of the need of each of these characters. You know, for whatever their reason might be, they needed to be on that ship, whether it was to show how much money they had or to live the dream that one day they may have as much money as they want or the dream to just have a better life than they used to have. That is that hope that you're talking about. And he says it's the job of the composer lyricist to find the positive inside the negative, to find hope even in the face of disaster. I think that's very much an Oscar Hammerstein thing. I think it's a musical theater thing in general because we're always singing from someplace within. And there always has to be a, a kernel of hope there. I mean, there just has to be or else we would all lay down and die. (laughs) 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 So while I think sometimes we complain that musical theater can be, you know, overtly hopeful or cheerful, I just think that speaks to the human spirit, you know? I agree. Oh, I'm feeling so alive. This is great. (laughs) Now... In general, Peter Stone would write the scenes and then Mari would write underscoring. Did you ever witness any of that? Actually, the first day of rehearsal, I don't know if Judy told you this or whatever, but mm-hmm. Maury Estin sat down at that piano and played the entire thing for us, doing everybody's part. And we were all like, oh, oh my like, gosh. So he, like, it just came out of him, the music, the singing, all of it. And it was... It was really cool. I know some people have certain little recordings of some of that, which I would love to hear again, because there we sat in 890 890 Studios, and he sat at the baby grand right in the middle, and we all kind of were just enthralled, trying to understand from him and his enthusiasm what this was supposed to be. He just acted it all out for us, and he played it, and it was amazing. So once you guys started, you know, that first day to when you opened on Broadway, how much time went by? Do you know? Gosh, I don't really know. I want to say we were like in the studio for something crazy, like 12 weeks and eight to 12 weeks. And then tech, I mean, tech, the tech, I mean, tech went on and on. Um, I can't really remember. It was too long ago. No, that's fine. And heaven knows that sometimes when you're out of it, you're like, let's stay out of it. (laughs) (laughs) but let's can we go to the tech a little bit because like you said the show was so big that there was no way you were going to have an out-of-town tryout which the purpose of an out-of-town tryout is so that you can work things out with an audience that is maybe a little more forgiving than new york audiences no offense to new yorkers we love you you're amazing oh one other uh, thing that uh, might be an interesting tidbit is that before we could sign our contracts, we had to go to the theater and they built this thing that sat in the lobby that was um, a structure of um, what it would be on stage at its highest tilt. So we had to go walk on this tilted structure in the lobby to make sure that we could handle that before we signed our contracts. How big of a tilt was it? Was it pretty extreme? It was pretty, I mean, pretty I, high. Do I, I don't know the degree, it. but it was, it was significant. 
Yeah, I mean, you could you would be sliding down it if you. Ah! Yeah. Oh my gosh, crazy! At this point, the the show has been written, like the show's been put together, and now it's a matter of you know figuring out what's working what's not working especially like we said with all of these different people all of these storylines which ones are breaking through which ones are kind of becoming more and more irrelevant horrible to say but it's still a piece of art and you kind of have to take a a, an objective look at that so all of these decisions are being made here's the problem with tech with a show this huge is that so much of the show has been structured around how long it will take for scene changes. Mm-hmm. So the minute that That's you make true. one little cut, you're messing with all of the timing that goes on backstage. So from what I understand, from what everyone has said, it wasn't so much that you guys were having huge technical issues. It was that as certain things were changing within the show, there was no way to really redo all of the choreography that needed to be done backstage in order for the show to keep moving at the same pace that it had been. Yes, that that is definitely true. I mean, the tech of the costume changes alone, because like in my number and ladies made we were all just singing you know in first class and we run off everybody's you know stripping and changing (laughs) now into third class and then running back on while something's happening i think the i think a crew scene was happening in in front of us but we had such a limited time and then boom we got to the third class wow yeah that and you're that's a really good point like that it, it wasn't just the tech, but it was the tech too. But also, it was yes. because it was a major hydraulic um, system and things would, you know, like there would be like a speck of dust in the hydraulics and that would shut <laughs> down the show for however long, if they couldn't get it started again, it could just shut down the show. Completely which, shut down. You know, like we could have told the story on a flat surface with nothing like we did in the rehearsal room, but that wasn't part of the show. You also had, Titanic was one of the first shows that really played with scale. The first act, which ends with the ship sailing right into the iceberg, was represented by this miniature of the ship going across the stage in a beautiful silhouette that was always really impressive. And I remember when I saw the audience, you know, applauded or kind of squealed because it was this, you know, really impressive thing. But that wasn't the only time that that was employed originally, right? There were Correct. there were several of those types of moments in, in the show. And some of those got cut. Yeah. We, we, <laughs> ship, here comes ship on a stick. Oh, no. We, you know, it, they really yeah. just didn't look, look nice. So that was the only one that was retained. I, I believe so. The end of act one and part of the original thing that Richard wanted to show. I mean, the Lunt Fontaine, Lunt Fontaine has not big backstage, but mm. it was supposed to look expansive. You were only ever going to see a small segment of the ship. And that was supposed to imply that it went this way and that way for what another 800 like, feet. Yeah, like miles. Um, and so that's what, you know, he, he did a lot of like people walking in lines. We'd walk off the stage and your mind would think that that line would go. And meanwhile, it was like the same actor, like running around and coming right back on the stage, you know, interesting imply the vastness. So on all of the deck scenes, that's what it was. You were always seeing a slice and the implication was it was this massive ship and we only saw it at a far far distance at the end of act one i can't really remember where ship on a stick was 
but it was, it was not good. And it looked silly and people were laughing at it and that, and it got cut. And then it got cut. And then there were like the ship um, wreckage when the mm. submarine submersible came down. And, and that also looked too rinky dink after, after seeing this. After grand, the majesty. Yeah, thing, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. It just took away from it. So that was cut. I find all of that so inspiring because I tend to think that I'm a much better editor than creator. <laughs> Editing is and everything. I mean, you know what I mean? Everything. But like, truly, there is something so artistically powerful about being able to make decisions when they need to happen and then have those decisions pan out. And this is a great, great example of that. Uh, I'd love to take a little bit of time right now and go through some of the we won't go through the entire script with this show because it's it's just too dense to keep track of all of the characters but there is kind of an arc and uh, some of the numbers that I really want to point out, uh, especially if it means that some of our listeners who haven't listened or explored the show before will be motivated to go and do so. Um, we've talked about the, you know, this prologue and and uh, launching sequence, which is the huge first part where we meet everybody. You guys did a beautiful cast album that I believe won a Grammy Award. Hey, hey. <laughs> and it tells the story beautifully. I definitely don't need to do it. Do you have any other memories of this sequence? Because you are meeting everyone in their most hopeful moment in this show. Yeah, I mean, it was just such an economic way to set up everybody. Economic is a great way to say it. Introduce everybody. And the way that Mari built the sound from the very uh, singular beginning with in every age, da, 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 the server started that too, to that wall of sound at the end. I had never heard voices like that. You know, wow. I've done professional gigs, but... Never like, I mean, there were 40 people, you know, singing different things. And I had never experienced that kind of, oh, I don't even know how to describe it. It was so magical. You know, I always hate to be the person that's like, they don't build them like they used to. But (laughs) with this show, I don't ever see a show like this ever happening on Broadway ever again. It's what's probably way too expensive But because of it, you hear this sound, this incredible choral sound in Godspeed Titanic, which is the number that ends the whole launching sequence. Full orchestra and a full chorus. The orchestra. We haven't even talked about the orchestra. orchestra. Yeah, it's the economics of it. I mean, God bless those Dodgers. I, I don't know. It was a lot. And it paid off because, you know, spoiler alert, the ship does sink, but... You guys sailed on to glory, becoming a hit and winning the Tony Award for Best Musical. Even with all of the rumor mills saying that the show would sink, you guys did not. This year, the Tony Awards was the first time that an award had been given to an orchestrator. And I can think of no better recipient than Mr. Jonathan Tunick, who did the orchestrations. I remember the Sense Pro. We were in the lobby first time we heard the orchestrations and just everybody, I mean, you couldn't even sing it. Everybody's crying. It was so beautiful. The strings, oh, everything. Wow. So beautiful. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, okay, yes. So after the launching, we kind of get these different numbers and scenes to introduce some of the more main characters. So the first one we meet is Barrett, who works in 
the he he shovels coal. He keeps the the entire thing going. And what's really kind of sad and ironic is that he left his job shoveling coal to then get on a ship and shovel coal, right? <laughs> yeah. And so he sings this song called Barrett's Song. This is when we all were, I think, first introduced to the golden-voiced Brian D.R.C. James. Oh, I know. Uh, I mean, my gosh. I mean, he's legitimately, that's his voice every show. Like, solid as a rock, beautiful, focused, beautiful actor, such a presence, relaxed. I mean... What a jerk. (laughs) That's amazing. In a very interesting counterpoint, we then go from the bottom of the ship to the top of the ship, which is the number What a Remarkable Age This Is, uh, where all of the first class passengers are commenting on how lucky we are to be alive in the best time of the world with all of the most amazing things. And I did not know you were in this scene as well, even though you were most well known for being a third class passenger. So you were all in this we scene as well. We were all in this scene as well. And we were Ooh. all dressed up and then we'd all live in your best first class life. <laughs> yeah. It's a another glorious song with just a punishing soprano line. And then uh, you all ran off stage to make your quick change, only then for you guys to run back on as third class passengers, which let's be honest, the third class passengers are who we most identify with, right? I mean, as a bunch of Americans who are essentially all immigrants, you guys are the ones who get our hearts. And I mean, it makes me like, oh, it makes me teary. I just even think about this song because it the sound and feeling of this song is exactly how I think we feel about all of our immigrant ancestors. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. I know. It's how I feel about it's a mine. It's beautiful. It's that hope thing. It's that hope for a better everything. And uh, it, it's such a cute thing. It's also very stereotypical, but like uh, there were three Kates, right? There were multiple Kates on the ledger. So when Peter Stone thought that, he's like, well, of course, they're all named Kate. They're from <laughs> they're from <laughs> Ireland. Kate McGowan, your character, wanted to be a lady's maid. And I, I guess what was that even? Like what set her attention and intention to to that particular job? Well, I just I think that was a good, steady position in a in a fancier household with, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure not incredible pay, but steady yeah. valued pay. And, and it was a, it was a valued and trusted position. Um, if you were a lady's maid, you were her trusted companion and helper and something to aspire to. Absolutely. Other people want to become governesses, but what is so beautiful is that as everyone comes together at the end, they say you all saying, I want to rise above myself. Like, regardless of what the job is, like, it probably doesn't really matter. But can we just please make life a little bit better than we had it before? And that is that hope. Yeah. That I is very buoyant. Just saying that. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Oh, at the end of Ladies Made, we also find out that your character is Preggers. Yup. So that is very interesting and also complicates things a little bit because there's a a fella in the third class who you take a liking to and who takes a liking to you. Yeah. I love that I'm like telling you the story, but also using you as though you're the real person. That's (laughs) hilarious. Yeah. So it's interesting. And will he be okay with it? Right. Exactly. Uh Exactly. Will she level with him? 
right? Is she gonna is she gonna fess up? We shall see. Now I get so emotional about that song, but then traditionally I think people will often say that the most beautiful song in the show is coming up right after this, which is the, a duet called "The Proposal" slash "The Night Was Alive." Alive. Oh. So you got Brian D.R.C. James, who is trying to send a message to the girl that he wants to marry. And so he goes to the guy who's in charge of like Morse code, right, to send the Mm -hmm. to send the telegram, who is kind of a nervous fella, probably has a hard time communicating with people, which makes him perfect to be the person to sit behind the little desk and send these telegrams. And as they're connecting these messages to people, you know, in different parts of the world, they're realizing how important it is to feel that connection. And so they sing this duet about their own separate experiences. And when it comes together, it's just glorious. Holy cow. That that is the best number in the show. I mean, it's so and those two, Marty and Brian. Oh, my goodness. We all I mean. We would cry all the time listening to the two of them. And yeah. we did a, a revival, um, not a revival, it was like a revival concert that Don mm. directed um, with full orchestra. Kevin Stites was conducting. He was our conductor on Broadway. Um, wow. and as much of the original company as he could muster and then a choir of kids behind. It was like. Oh, come on. That's so nice. It was so, so beautiful. In the rehearsal for that concert, Again, we're all in a rehearsal room and we're running. What will it be like? They do that song with just the piano and all of us were like <laughs> falling. I don't even know how they they could sing it. I mean, Brian can sing through anything. Brian's like the chords of rock. Steel. Yeah. But the rest of us, we were just like, oh, it was just, just the memory of how beautiful and tender that that duet is and their performances. And, oh, that's so great. A lot That's of so crying. Beautiful. A lot of crying. A lot of crying. Go apparently. I get it. Even talking about this makes me want to cry and I wasn't even freaking part of the the process. <laughs> so now we go to the first class. There's like this whole sort of uh rag dance that comes after a Sunday service. Once again, just really taking the time to show that up until the wreck, people were having the time of their lives. Yes. Absolutely. The second class passenger, Alice Bean, uh, who we've mentioned before, has kind of snuck into this party and is living her best life times three. And so after she gets done with that, uh, her husband is berating her and saying, like, why isn't the life I've provided for you good enough? And she's like, I don't know, but I just feel like there's something more for me. And this is giving me the opportunity. And she uh, she sings, I have danced. Now, this is one of the songs that was added pretty late in the process, right? Yes. Yeah, that wasn't there at all. And it felt like it needed to be expanded into a musical moment. It's a really, it's lovely. Yeah. And gives, once again, the right feel to what we need from the second class that's different from either the first or the third. So it balances out all of the storytelling. This shoves us really quickly into leading up to the disaster. Uh, we've got a gorgeous song called No Moon, which Fleet sings, who's in the... Um, in the crow's nest. In the crow's nest, looking yeah. out for things. By the way, they didn't have the right binoculars or something up there. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, all of the things that... Once again, this wrong. perfect storm. That, that's another one. Yep. 
Uh, so there's no moon. It's very dark. He doesn't have the right binoculars, so he doesn't see yeah, the, yeah. the the iceberg in time. The first class is having a, a game of cards. Oh, we didn't talk about Becky Ann Baker, who is in first class. And yeah. I mean, what an incredible actress she is. We talked about her on our Assassins episode. Oh, uh, yeah. Becky's Becky's amazing. And she we shared a dressing room together. She's a oh, how fun gal. Oh, that's awesome. And then at the end of the first act, as everybody's singing uh, their own portion of, you know, No Moon, we have the wreckage. Now, the second act is, I mean, you guessed it, really leading us to the gradual sinking and the realization or even the acceptance that it's going to happen. The first class is the last because they were the most egoic about being on the ship in the first place everyone's really like oh we'll be on our way everything's fine and then the music all cuts out and we see this bar cart slowly going all by itself which means that the ship is starting to you know sink on one end and then we see everybody realize oh crap and at the end of that song, something that the orchestra does so interesting is the dun 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 as everyone's holding out this note. Right. The orchestra is doing SOS. How smart. There's a great scene called The Blame in which the designer of the ship, Andrews, the captain of the ship, and the owner of the ship are all trying to, you know. Whose fault is this? Yeah. Exactly. Isn't that a great number? It's a great number. One of those like scene song numbers where you're like, oh my gosh, they're singing. But I'm like so into the feeling of the moment that I'm not even noticing it. And they were in the tiniest space Mm. in the on the high tilt. I mean, not the highest tilt, but a tilt. So Mm -hmm. just, you know, you had to do your thing and yell in someone's face and then you couldn't really get away. But you were turning away just a foot. You know, it was like such a challenge for the three of them on that tilt and in they were in um there was a roof above them and a you like know a little box yeah they were in the box they were tilted oh in a gosh. very small space but it's that... really works really works that number now going right to the lifeboats which is when we're you know finally trying to save some people from this horrible disaster with the lifeboats that they do have one of the things they realize that is that in tragic moments like this what we tend to do when communicating with other people is to break things down into an, a really elementary form that even a child could understand. And that inspired the whole sequence to be started by a mother explaining to her child what was about to happen. We're going into the lifeboat. Everything's going to be fine. But let's just try and keep calm. Yeah. And then things just keep getting more intense from there. It builds so much tension. It borrows musical themes from that we've heard in in the show that were once really hopeful, now feeling just full of dread. Mm-hmm. Uh, really powerful. Robin Irwin and Michael Mulheron were that moment with little Charlie McAteer, who's now a grown man and produces himself. He produced, You're kidding. Uh, he produced the little boy with the boat that would hold yeah. it in the air? Little Charlie McAteer. Yeah. That's so sweet. I love that. Now, the people who get on the lifeboats are mainly women and children. All the male millionaires stayed on the boat yep. in order for their wives to get on. 
there's this incredible scene where they all kind of have a come to Jesus moment, as we mm-hmm. like to say, and really look at their wealth and realize what sacrifices did they make or who did they uh, ruin in order to get it. And one of them says, all right, let's start confessing who's going to go first. You know, it's it's this really powerful moment. And from what I understand, these like the porthole moments, right, where everybody was standing up with their face in a porthole, uh, having these different scenelets that came out of the need to have more time for a scene change. Yeah. And, you know, there was a whole millionaire's number. Oh, a song. That was one of the reasons that Richard Jones wanted to direct that show. Because he found that moment as these men, these wildly successful men were reckoning with their lives and what they had done to get where they were and they were about to die. Like he found that so compelling. That's why he wanted to direct that show. And then ultimately something had to go. And and as interesting as that and special as that was, I'm so glad you were moved by even just the scene because – Those men were full. I mean, those actors like filled it, but they did have a whole song that was so interesting and fascinating. But but then the Strausses were, I think, felt that that's the more important emotional payoff. And there couldn't be like this two couldn't fit back to back somehow. It just wasn't working in the storytelling. So unfortunately, that had to go. But that was a heartbreak because that was a great number. And those men were amazing doing it. Wow. <clears throat> I would have loved to have seen that. The scene is really powerful, though. I find that I find it such an interesting piece to include. I'm glad that it didn't get cut altogether. Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to be positive. <laughs> 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 but let's talk about the Strauss's number, because, uh, like I said, all of the first class women were saved except for Mrs. Strauss, who refused to get on the lifeboat. She wanted to stay with her husband. And they sing this glorious song called Still, in which they sing about their love for each other. Oh, my gosh. Another cry number. Five tissues. And I think that originally that's what they were thinking. Well, that will be the cathartic. You know, that will be one of the moments, the cathartic moments. So maybe we can't also have this other one. I don't know. I mean, that was above my pay grade. I was just, I was surviving. <laughs> I am Kate I was, My little storyline. <laughs> and then in the midst of all of this, turns out Jim's okay with your baby. Yes, that happened actually at the end of Act One. Oh, did um, it? Oh, that's right. You the, have that little scene. That there's like, yeah, on the deck, other little scenes that were happening. It would close up on one of the decks. So our storyline came in and out of another number where you saw that progression of the relationship and will he or won't he and yes he will and yay so that mm. was that all happened right in, during no moon actually that's right not as long as you have your arms around me yeah <laughs> so cute all right now now we're sinking faster and faster we got uh, mr andrews who is kind of in a, a mental breakdown mental and emotional breakdown going over all of his design plans while he's on his own sinking ship trying to figure out what he could have done to have made this work really powerful, especially when you got Michael Cerverus doing it. Yeah. And things are crashing around him. That, that was called right. crash bang wallop. That number. <laughs> and so it was, it was tilting more and more and things were, he had to be in the right position because things were coming past him. And then at the end, 
the piano sliding down. The piano. You know, as the curtain's coming down. So you never see the piano like crush him, but it's coming that way. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Am I right in remembering that not only did you guys have a drop that went down, you had a drop that went up? Yes, I think that the it came from up after that to like to make it, to be it the was water rising and the thing sinking. So smart because yeah. we always think of like the curtain coming down, right? Right. But if the water's rising, we had the curtain going up. Yeah, and I so, think that that was the only time right then that that mm-hmm. curtain went that way. That's really cool, yeah. and also tragic. Uh, right after that, the survivors come out all wrapped in blankets. What's written on the blanket again? Carpathia. That was the ship that uh, picked us up. Okay. And everybody is sharing different, I guess. Like statistics kind of. Statistics, right. Yeah. We're, we're, it's, we're kind of like in that, you know, shock really. Mm -hmm. Shock. We're, we're telling the statistics of what happened, how many were saved and, and all of that. And then you go into this reprise of In Every Age, right? Right. Which is what Andrews had begun singing at the very beginning, that men always attempt to build something that is greater than themselves, that will outlast themselves and prove to be bigger than anything that they could have been on their own. Mm -hmm. And in a weird, ironic way, Titanic was a total failure and yet still was that for them. So it definitely adds the question of at what cost do we do that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. As you sing this very heavy, sad reprise of it, then we get the ending that we have been talking about this entire time, which is the stage picture that will always live in my mind. Yes. Gosh, dang it. I've had like a fever for like two days. And so I feel like I'm just like super emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I've been super um, emotional all week. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> and the curtain goes up and you see all of those that have passed in the same positions when they were their most hopeful, when they were getting on that ship. In the opening hope- number, in their opening with their luggage and their coats and their hope and the gangplank and... Yeah. And then we see this moment of the survivors going into that scene and seeing their friends, seeing their passengers, seeing the people who they went through this huge life changing event. And the orchestra is playing this like incredible thing that I don't even know how they knew that it would give me that emotional response, but it does. Yeah. (laughs) And then. You all sing a final reprise of Godspeed Titanic. Sail on, sail on, yeah. Yeah. What do you think is the difference between what sail on meant in the beginning and sail on means at the end? I guess we must look forward and to the future. And we, in spite of loss and tragedy, we must continue to look forward with hope. We must. That's what it means to me, I think. We have to find hope in the tragic. We do. That's, like we said, one of the things that makes this entire event the most human is because machines don't create hope. And I think that that's what I left with feeling from this show as well. Yeah. So brava and congrats and thank you for being a part of it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was so This fun. was really cool. We live it. I, I hadn't. You know, I mean, I I do think about it because I carry it with me. It was that special. But thinking specifically about 
you know, in the rehearsal room or tech or um, specific moments of the show really just bring me back there. So thank you for bringing me back there. It was such a joy and I'm so always glad to revisit it. As always, if you have recommendations like our friend Allison, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at amusicalpodcast. And remember to subscribe to Patreon! Exclamation point, where for only $1 a month, you can receive access to bonus materials and episodes that are a thank you for helping us keep the show alive. We're also on TikTok. We have a tea Public store. There are so many ways to be involved with this amazing podcast family that I am so grateful for. Hey, Miss Jennifer Peach, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? So I am on Twitter at, at Jennifer Peach. And um, I just wanted to invite everybody to come and see Come From Away on Broadway. We just opened on Tuesday. You're in Come From Away? I'm not in Come From Away, but I am a co-producer. My husband and I are co-producers on that. It's our first co-producer credit. That's incredible. uh, Yeah. So we're very excited. We are working on all five companies. The tour also goes out soon. There's London. There's Australia. And, um, of course, the one in Canada. Hello. But, uh, yes, but please come to New York and come see the show. And What an incredible show. I mean... I got to say, like, another traumatic event in history that gave birth to a lot of hope, especially in its artistic uh, representation. Like, holy cow, I'm so... I'm so impressed and honored and brava. I love that show. (laughs) Oh, good. Yay. Yeah. Everyone, go to New York. I feel like we need it right now, you know? We We need to celebrate kindness right now, especially. Amen. We covered Come From Away and Gino Carr was our uh, oh. was our guest. Oh, wonderful. Yes, yes. Okay. Huge plug for Come From Away. Let's <laughs> let's go fill those houses, everyone. Yes. Um, thank you again. And to everyone out there, uh, Godspeed. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.